You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because I'm procrastinating grading these research papers, okay? Lay off, guys. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maraska. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 39, Three Puri. Welcome back, listeners, for another episode that is written by you, actually. We have taken questions from our Discord and from Twitter, and we are going to be answering them on air tonight. Um, Before we get going, anyone have anything um, announcement-wise exciting? You're... When this airs, your book will be pretty soon, won't it, Cass? It will. I was trying to do the math in my head. Don't do that. It'll be a... It'll be a couple of weeks <laughs> off yet, but December 29th, give way tonight, will be out. And it's I'm... book month, and that's good enough to, sh- it to is. be shouty about it. It's close. It's close. It's enough time to still get that pre-order in. Uh-huh. And yeah, I'm really excited. I, I've been having fun prepping for it. I have some fun ideas for what I'm going to be flinging out on my social media during the month of December to, to try and generate some buzz. So, And mostly just to entertain myself while I'm you know, waiting for that day to come. <laughs> it's like just lots and lots of aesthetics on Instagram and things like that. Excellent. Um, the value of just like doing things to entertain and distract yourself. Like, I don't know if all those like cards I did for, for Meridane before people, the city came out, if that moved the needle on sales and inch, probably not, but you know what? I had a good time. I like fun. I like fun. <laughs> But you never know what's actually a useful thing to do. But it's always good to just be, like, shouty about your book, I think. Because Twitter is just a torrential storm. And (laughs) you never know when, like, that one person who follows you, but it's just like, oh, you have a book. I didn't realize until now because of that one post. Like, which is amazing. But yet that is the way Twitter works. Well, And and Twitter is a storm and 2020 is a crap hole and so you have to make your joy where you can find it and if it's doing goofy (laughs) book promo whatever on social media you do it gosh darn it i'm for it love it so go wildcast we're looking forward to to seeing what you do i'm gonna and i'm nuts i also this happened last week but it's it's out there in the world now um i got to do an interview with autocrit about nanowrimo and it's it's on their YouTube and it's it's linked on my pages and stuff. And it was so much fun. It was it was a really lovely conversation about what I've done with Nano over the years, how much I love it, and and why I think it's for some people for the right kind of brain, um, such a great tool for generating words. And it's going quite well for me right now. I'm making nice progress on book three, so <laughs> that's nice. a nice place to be in. Yeah. But I think that's it. That's all I've got announcement-wise is chugging towards release day. Hooray. Well, shall we dive into asking some questions? I figured we could just kind of round robin this guy. And I don't know, Marshall, do you want to pick first? Pick a question, any question? Sure. Uh, The question I'm going to take, because this this one is just dear to my heart, um, comes from Mike Headley at Bowtie Writer. Mike Mike is a longtime fan and friend of the show. Um, He asks, when do you know 
you've gone too deep. And I'm not being a smartass, but at some point you have to be like, I've gone too far, too far. How do you tell? This is, I mean, I, this is a great question because this, this is like where I live. <laughs> <laughs> because I often do wonder, like, am I going too far with this? Is this, is this useful at all? I mean, like, like I've joked about, like, I'm the guy who made a whole, like, stellar chart to figure out where the planets were in what constellation just to write one line of dialogue. But at the same time, while I did that, I did all that work to just write one line of dialogue. I also did it because I knew I had plans for the future that would utilize that information also. So it wasn't like I'm just, you know, I was just procrastinating by making a star chart. It was like, okay, I have a longer term plan where I'm going to need this info. So this is a good time to stop and do it and make sure I have it right. But in terms of how do you know when you've gone too deep is really, at least for me, it's really hard to gauge. I would say, like, the easy answer is when you're just, at least for me, is when you're world building to avoiding, to avoid doing the writing. But even that isn't necessarily the case. I would say when you're doing it and it itself is no longer fun and then you're... It's you're procrastinating what you're procrastinating with. That's when you know you're going <laughs> too deep. I really like how this question like assumes we have the self-awareness to tell. Where is that? <laughs> but um, yeah, it's giving us a lot of credit we might not deserve. <laughs> but no, I, I think that I think that your point about having fun with it versus not is very is very apt because you you are in fact allowed even with contracted work that you have sold to have fun with your writing so there is an element of like keeping the joy in it and as long as it's serving that you know there 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 can be purpose to it even if it's not directly related to like what's going to end up on the page um when i'm really in crunch time though for me it it does kind of come down to like okay so what is going to serve me on the page and if I'm like going down the rabbit hole of writing, you know, a, a compendium of folk tales from this imaginary country that I made up because it's fun, but it's not going to be serving me with any kind of word count that my editor will be able to salvage with me at all. It's it's time to put a pin in it and save that for some time that I'm just writing for funsies myself. Yeah, I think that there's a difference between what's too much when you are still sort of generating the idea of a world and what's too much when you're actually at the point of drafting. For me, I do a lot of stuff with each project up front when I'm still sort of just moodling in it and and finding my way through the world that may or may not end up getting used. Because wandering down those paths is how I find what will be important and what will actually inspire plot details or character points. Um, when it comes to the actual drafting, I have to measure that differently and, and figuring out where the world building is getting in the way of the plot. The the example I've used before and will use again and will always use was my extreme digression into the voting assembly procedures of ancient Rome. Would you like to know about the tribal assemblies, friends? No, no, you don't. 14 people on the face of this planet care. Um, it was in the way of the plot. It was... It was not serving the story. But I didn't figure that out really until I was reading back later. And so my, my early drafts do tend to have a lot of 
that sort of thing in them. Another project I'm working on right now, the, the one that's set in a world inspired by Shakespearean theater, there are things in there that I know right now are just me showing off how much I know about Shakespearean theater. <laughs> that's all it is at the moment. Some of it will stay. Some of it, I'm sure, will get moved around and massaged into the into place better. And some of it will have to go. Um, I tend to find that on revision, where I've gone too deep, where I've gone overboard with telling the reader about the world building. I think that's a really good point, though, that you have to assess like what, what you actually do write down in drafting. Why is it here? And if it is just I am having a geek party of one right now, it probably needs to be trimmed at best. But in terms of like the actual world building, like I'm loath to say that there's ever a too deep point necessarily. Like there's no hard and fast rule, especially when you've yet to determine what the purpose of what you're doing is. Like if you are... Like, if you're continuing to build, say, instead of instead of for writing purposes, if you're building something for your RPG setting, and you know, you know, at any point, one of your, you know, your players might wander into this other part and you want to be ready, or you just enjoy the process of playing around in this world that you play in, then, yeah, like, who can say what's really too deep? I mean, I think that good hard and fast rule in as much as we have a hard and fast rule is when you've distracted yourself from what your point is. We really, we don't have hard and fast rules around here. We have floppy They're amorphous very rules. Soft floppy. <laughs> They're guidelines. guidelines. <laughs> They're guidelines. But yeah, I mean, that's when you're no longer having fun and you're no longer serving the purpose in which you're building the world for those, those I'd say are your, are your best guidelines in terms of when you've gone too far? I feel like that question connects nicely to another one that we've got on our list um, from our buddy at Gnome the Barbarian on Twitter asking, what's your favorite piece of world building for one of your novels that hasn't been explicitly on the page? Something you're proud of, but haven't had a place or time to work that in yet. I mean, I've got so many in that, like, most of the book, takes place in of all the books takes place in one city and i've got stuff for the whole world outside of it and i haven't played i have like i've used little tricks to show bits and pieces of what the outside world is but at the same time it's like i've done so much stuff with these other cultures that you've only gotten maybe a snippet of if that or just mention that they exist so I mean, there's a lot, and and I'm going to at least punt for the moment so I can think about what's a really cool one, and so because I've got so many, so much stuff that has never made it on the page. I think that's what I want to know. I want to know which of your other like countries that you haven't really introduced us to or done a deep dive on you wish you could or something like that. So think about it. So I'm thinking about. It. I will say mine is is similar to Marshall's in that um, you only in the Unraveled Kingdom trilogy spend time in like a few of the countries that are mentioned. 
And so um, I did a lot of thinking about the other ones in order to represent what those cultures would look like even when you were outside of those countries. So there's in book two, in my book, in book two, there's a um, international summit that these countries have representatives come to. And in order to kind of figure out, like, what is these people's deal? What are they doing? I have like an entire full backstory on them and how they fit into their culture in their in their home country. And one of those is the Allied Equatorial States, which is like a group of um, principalities, basically, that that um, actually have a kind of unique marriage culture in which there are multiple um, a, a wife can have multiple husbands. And so like you can either be in like the first family or like the second family, third family kind of a situation. And so for people who are in the second family, third family kind of situation, you have to really like politically maneuver to get yourself into any kind of, you know, having political capital because you're not like, like the first family of the larger family. So like this shows up in like one little tiny throwaway line where someone's explaining how they're related to someone else and why their last name is only partially the same because they share part of like the family line, but not the whole family line. But like I have this whole like I would love to dig into more like what those family dynamics would end up looking like and write like this like soap opera of of family dynamics in this place because I I thought through all kinds of implications for what this means when you have a very politically motivated group of people who use family as political capital but those families are unequally distributed so like how does that end up looking so that's mine that I like was very proud of and geeked about um but only wrote it's it's in there if you look for it but it's literally like a throwaway line about oh yes we have almost the same last name but not quite the same last name so you do kind of recognize my name but not really mine is perhaps unsurprisingly also similar to to y'all's in that i um i also wrote in world building a lot more of the world that ends up on the page i have ideas about what happens all over the place um so in Meo Libro, of course, we're focusing mostly on Avon, which is my Rome analog, but I know what's going on in my analog for Britain. I know what's going on in my analog for Egypt. And that's probably the one I would really like to play with at some point. Um, I have done a full family tree for the dynasty there. <laughs> that is my Ptolemaic dynasty analog. Um, and there's a few oblique references in the books about the Menophon, who is the Ptolemy's um, sort of analog, and the family and their wacky internecine murderous hijinks. I would love to play with that more. <laughs> I would really like to, to have the chance to um, explore that just absolutely bonkers family dynamic um, and the attendant magic that goes along with it, because the sort of other thing I have are some oblique references to non-Aventin forms of magic that not everywhere in the world operates on the same system. And I've made some little references to that, but it's the sort of thing I would love to have more room to explore. But the answer to that question is why I have a Patreon where I can dump whatever I want without any editor having <laughs> anything to say about it. <laughs> it's just having the time to eventually write it someday. So, I mean, there's so many things I... W- 
would love to like just wax nostalgic on about about the world that Meridane's in that like has not had any good excuse to put in the books like the the Fuergan culture has always been one that I really love playing with where they've got this culture that's very based on on wealth and status to which like your the amount of wealth you have determines your like it's embedded within your name and your title but at the same time and it's also a very family-oriented culture and i have this whole thing of these large group marriages that sort of extend you know from generation to generation you can marry into another family but your how your personal wealth and your family wealth are not necessarily directly tied and like there's a whole lot of complicated things going on there that I've never had a good excuse to like really demonstrate how and why that works because I would just have to write a book that takes place there. But there's, but it is this really weirdly complicated thing about how, you know, the amount of money you personally have, you know, has nothing to do with how much money the rest of your spouses have, but at the same time, you're deeply devoted to your spouses, but their finances are their own. And it's very weird. And and there there has not other than hinting a bit about that in Import of Intrigue, and then there's been there's the if you've read People of the City, which you know, there's the bit where they go to the Fuergan restaurant near the end of the and it's a whole, you know, it's a whole group marriage that runs the restaurant. And so there is a sort of like, okay, there is a different culture happening in the people who run this restaurant. But beyond seeing that, there's there's not a lot of there to grasp onto that I would love to show more of, but have not ever... I, I, I have not done that info dump on people yet. I do love your shawarma scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally the shawarma scene. I knew it was when I read it. I think I texted you about it or something. <laughs> All right. Um, I am going to pop to actually another question that gnome sent us um which is like the opposite of this question um is there any part of your world or subject of world building in general that absolutely bores the pants off you and if you if so do you try to just build around it do you just like cram it in the cupboard and hope no one notices what do you do stuff that bore like there are things it's harder for me to get into the mode of writing, but I still usually find them fascinating to think about. For me, writing military maneuvers is hard. I find battle strategy and, and things like that really difficult to think about. But I decided to write books involving legions, and so I have to. Uh, I... <laughs> did that to myself no one to blame but me and when i get into it like i am fascinated by how the legions were organized and and how incredibly detailed the infrastructure was i i like all of that but it's more difficult for me i don't know if i can think of things that just really you know i don't love food i uh, i include it because it's expected but I know Marshall. Marshall and I don't don't see eye to eye on that one. I, I'm capable of writing about food, but it's not the first thing I think about being interesting. You know, mine is anything with math. 
Like, I'll think about it, like, theoretically, like, oh, how could, how could, you know, this, this geography and this coastline work? And then I had to, like, work out, like, how many miles it is and what the equivalent would actually be for, like, traversing it with a sailing ship. And I'm like, ah, damn it. Or, like, I'll think about, like, well, I could break up the year in a different way. So it's not, like, 12-month cycles. It's something else. And what if the moon cycles? And I'm like, oh, god damn it. Math. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, honestly, my aversion to doing math probably limits the things that I could do in my world building. But don't, because I just don't want to do any more math than is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I'm reminded when my son was in high school and he was doing trig, he's like, when will I ever use this again? I'm like, well, I use it to calculate the distance between stars and the direction you'd have to travel to get to stars. He's like, yes, but you're weird. I'm like, when would a normal person <laughs> when will normal be able people to use this? <laughs> I'm like, okay, you might have. Um, it's, for me, the big one tends to be architecture. And I know part of that is just because, like, I feel like I don't have the language. And whenever I try and, whenever I try and, like, do the research to, like, figure out how to do the architecture, part of my brain just like, nope, just going off now. See ya. <laughs> this is not our thing. But also, it's the one where I feel like I'm doing the most, like where I'm really showing my hand on like where, what cultures I'm trying to scratch the serial numbers off of when like, cause there are certain words that like, if you use this word to describe a building, then like, you know, you're talking about like Orthodox Russian churches or something like that. Just because like, that's the only time that word gets used is to describe that sort of building. And so like, that's the part that just makes me like, do I have to? Do I have to describe buildings? Can can it just be a building? And you just, you know, <laughs> just be like, have you have you seen a picture of Greece? It looks like that. Okay. You know, can we can we move on? <laughs> so that's that's the part that that I really and, and weirdly enough, the other one is even though I've actually done a lot with it, is sports themselves really bore me. I am not the remotest interested in sports, but I like make a point of including them, including literally coming up with all the rules of how touch ball works um in which i wrote a whole a whole appendix on that <laughs> but at the same time like the idea of like actually of me actually like sitting down and watching a game of touch ball i'd be like that's really that's okay guys we don't we don't need to do that <laughs> i don't i'm not that interested but so that's one of those things that i put in because i'm like this is an important part of world building but it's not a part that I myself necessarily care about. Yeah, I think anything sport related, I've like just focused on the social part of it. Like, yes, there are people playing a game, but it's mostly about the conversation that's happening or, you know, whatever. Because I also am like, oh, I don't want to watch the sports ball. Ancient sports tend to involve a lot of bloodshed. So there's that as a point <laughs> of interest. In, in the other thing I'm working on, yeah, I don't think there's really a lot of sports. It's more like the physical activities that are interesting to me are dancing. That's what I like in a in a physical action more than more than sports ball. Though at the same time, I, I get annoyed when fantasy sports ball like like can we talk about Quidditch and how it makes no sense? I mean, <laughs> boy, so, so it's like howdy, like. 
I'm not interested in sports, but if you're going to put it, god damn it, have it, have the game make sense. <laughs> like, As someone who played Quidditch in college, let me tell you how much sense that game does not make. It's just, just bizarre. Just, yeah. I'm going to go with the question that we got in our email. Did we know who we This who is from this? Joey. Okay, this is from Joey, who wrote an email to us. And Joey writes, Hello, I'm a recent listener to your podcast and reader of transcripts, because podcasts with transcripts are mwah! And one that I found was especially good was episode 33, Disability and Inclusion with Elsa. It really helped me figure out how I want to write my own experience with disability into my story, and also branch out and be more inclusive. I had a question I thought it wouldn't hurt to ask. You're right, it wouldn't hurt, because here we are answering it. In the podcast, there were comments made about disability, magic, and consent that I found to be incredibly interesting, and it's a big theme in my current work, especially themes of magic, medical consent, and how it might apply to community structures. I was wondering if you had any more thoughts on that, or tips to follow, or questions that could be asked of where I can follow up and resources on the topic. So... The, the, the key question is about magic and consent in terms of disability. And like we talked a lot, we talked a bit there about how magic can be used to undermine consent. So, I mean, I think if, if you're kind of thinking, you know, even pulling the lens back from just thinking magic and disability, I think you have to keep in mind that any time you give a group of people in your world some kind of power that they can use to gain any kind of authority or power or anything over other people, like you have to address that in some way. Either what's preventing them from doing that or what happens when they go ahead and do it anyway. So whether that's magic or technology or you have an uneven economic system where some people have a lot of money and influence, like that's always going to be at play. So then what would that world be like? <laughs> I can't even imagine what that world could be like. Um, <laughs> so when you like pull in that lens and say, okay, so within that framework of any time, people have the ability to exert control over other people like how do you deal with that and how do societies deal with that and how do cultures deal with that and there are like about a bajillion ways that cultures deal with that within that framework of any time people can exert control over other people there has to be a way to, to address that or deal with it and societies have all kinds of ways of of dealing with that whether it be formal laws or taboos or morals or ethics and so folding that question into the larger question of like okay so how how do you create morals and ethics around exertion of power i've been i've been mainlining a lot of old x-men comics lately um for reasons that will be revealed eventually and i, I think i know the reason you may but it's it's still officially a secret um until like the week before it happens but i've been mainlining a lot of these comics and the sheer amount of fuckery that professor xavier gets up to <laughs> while purporting himself to be you know the most moral and having the the most ethical core and it's like i'm minutin bitter <laughs> like what is happening because he's a 
telepath who can change the minds of the entire world if he wants to. And a lot of writers over time have sort of examined that. And, and you get, you know, expressions of him where it's it's evil Xavier or his evil side comes out or something. And, and it really does interrogate that question of where does that excess power, especially if it's unchecked, end up leading you? And, and what ability does it give you to just fuck with people? <laughs> that reminds me of, like, the, there was the storyline that came out in the early 2000s that looked at back in, you know, when it switched to the new X-Men back in the 70s, where the, you know, Xavier had to recruit a team to rescue the original team off of Krakoa. And so then the storyline came out that was like, oh, he actually recorded recruited a different team in between recruiting those two teams that failed completely and then erased the memory of that team from everybody. And when you read that, you're just like, yeah, he'd do that. <laughs> like, like I said, the sheer amount of fuckery. The sheer amount of fuckery he would do in, in the name of this is for your own good. and Or for the greater good. And, and, or for the you greater know, good. Like what Roman was saying, like, without external checks are there internal checks does someone have a moral compass that puts a check on them or does that moral compass enable them to rationalize what they're doing well and i think that when you bring it back around to the ideas of medical consent that is huge because so frequently what people i mean i i think 99.9 percent .9 of people believe that what they are doing is is good they they think they're doing the right thing but is it always the right thing and when does it supersede what an individual would choose for themselves and i think that when you get into the idea of medical consent i think any murkiness there the people you know involved believe they were doing the right thing either for the individual or for the greater good or had rationalized it to get back around to that point but would the individual who was affected by it agree with that? And I think that you end up with a kind of tension between, you know, the idea of, of an individual would choose something different than the person who has power over them um, chooses for them. And that, I mean, there's plenty of nasty things in our own history that we could, could delve into as illustrations at that point. But... Um, but yeah, I think that idea is pretty key of frequently people believe they're doing a good thing. It's for the greater good. It's for your own good. But it's still exerting power over someone who has not been granted the ability to choose for themselves. Especially in terms of combining magic with that. Like, if I'm parsing this question correctly, like things like, oh, we can magically cure your blindness. So we did. Like whether you asked us to or not and and that can be a really like ethically hinky thing in terms of like just because you can quote unquote fix a thing you know does that mean you necessarily should just for the sake of of doing it i mean that's kind of what the whole plot of gattaca was it was like oh we can we can genetically fix all the things that were could have might potentially be wrong with you before you ever did that but since the main character was born before we could do that oh you're just you're just flawed sorry 
So, you, <laughs> so therefore, you're like just undercast because because you didn't get fixed, and and so there's a whole lot of like like just the idea of presumption of like, well, because you potentially have a heart condition, therefore you can't do anything in this world. We've already decided. Thank you. And so there is there is a lot of that of like just like no we've already made that decision for you well then that so involves then like the, the application of what a culture has decided is a flaw so right. i mean and this is something that i will totally take correction on because i'm not that well versed in it but my understanding is that for the most part the deaf community does not see their hearing status as a flaw that is that is right who they are and and the idea that you, that they need people to come in and fix their status as deaf people with a medical device is potentially offensive. Like that's not, that's not respecting where they would categorize, you know, flaw versus unflaw. And that's an application from outside rather than something that they're choosing or applying on themselves. That is damaging to their culture and not respectful of their culture. Right. And again, I'm not an expert on that. And we will yes, take please let us know if we missed that. That's just from what I have understood from from a couple of people who are close to the deaf community. But I could be wrong. So please do chime in on that, folks. I remember hearing when I was I took ASL in high school that it was a big conversation that like any group, the deaf community is not a monolith and some feel a certain way about things like cochlear implants and some feel a very different way. And it is so wrapped up in where does the physical manifestation of your being overlap with your culture. And so, yeah, I think that is a good thing to be mindful of when it comes to magical solutions as we currently have mechanical or um, medicinal solutions. You want to make sure you're not introducing magical eugenics unless that's the story you're trying to tell you know unless that's deliberately what you're examining i think there there can also sort of be a, another aspect to it which is the the well-intentioned fixer of things just getting it absolutely wrong and i'm having trouble placing the story something is boiling in my brain about like a fairy character in something that went around thinking she was doing good things and and everything she did just made everything absolutely worse I think that was a, that was Ella Enchanted. What? That, I think it might have been. It's like it's pinging in the very back of my head. Um, well, that definitely was the inciting incident of Ella Enchanted was a yeah. fairy who thought that she was granting a wish and it was not horribly awry. <laughs> yeah. It just made everything so terrible. But she was or like, no. or like um, in to use Harry Potter as an example again, because even though J.K.R. is trash, there are still some decent tropes worth examining in there. Um, in Chamber of Secrets, when Gilderoy Lockhart tries to fix Harry's broken arm and debones him instead, <laughs> like it's like, oh, you did not make a good medical decision, and that kid was straight up telling you not to do it because he knew you were a fuckhead. So, <laughs> and then the poor kid had to drink Skelligro and like all kinds of medical magical nonsense happening to him but yeah like i feel like those concepts of good intentions poor execution get magnified with magic um sort of like we were talking about in, in the last episode about that lens that magic can put on things to make bigger what's going on 
But just also imagine that critical failure role of I'm going to I'm going to mend this bone. Oh, whoops! I just made all bones disappear <laughs> instead. <laughs> like that's that's quite the thing. Though I'm reminded there was an episode of Babylon Five that hit on this where this alien culture who was like barely had space flight, barely had any sort of like influence in the intergalactic community had like shown up on the station with their child who was sick and the doctor checked him out and it's like oh yeah this is a simple thing like one little surgery it'll be fine and they're like what no there's no you know because if you cut him his soul escapes and and that's you know so that's not gonna happen the doctor's like no he's gonna die unless i do the surgery and the episode basically goes on to the doctor being like no i'm right so therefore i'm just gonna do the surgery i don't care what the parents say and then he does it and like the kid is better but then as soon as the parents walk in they know they like walk in and like oh my god what the hell you know that's a soulless being over there now and and then they're like okay so i guess we kill the kid and that was the end of the episode and he's like the doctor's like but but no i i did the right thing <laughs> no, did you no <laughs> well i think it's interesting too that when you get into anything talking about um you know medicine and combining magic with medicine like medicine is very imperfect as it stands like even right now in our like most advanced of times if you talk to anyone with you know a chronic condition or who has undergone any kind of extensive experience with having to undergo treatment you know there's hits and misses and you you know might not get taken you know taken seriously sometimes if you have certain conditions or your doctors misdiagnose there are certain conditions that it takes like multiple years to get a correct diagnosis on um on average for people so it's kind of interesting to me that usually when we talk about combining magic with this it's like we skip that part and it's like we we have the right diagnosis we have the right treatment and we're going to apply it correctly but there's an ethical conundrum that strips away this whole part of like okay, but are you actually right? Do I as the patient trust the system that has screwed with me for the last three years on, you know, we all oh, we have you figured out, oh, no, we don't. Oh, you're a crazy, hysterical woman. Maybe your uterus is wandering around inside your body. I don't know. So, you know. <laughs> Happens all the time. I it's just, rough. yeah, I got to pin that thing rough. down. <laughs> Every problem we have, just tie it right back to that. So I think it's it's interesting and could complicate in really interesting ways if, you know, you're combining either very advanced technology as sci-fi does or magic as fantasy does with medicine in ways that grapple with that, you know, it's a practice of medicine. It's not perfect. It's not always accurate. And people have often personal distrust and cultural distrust for sometimes really good reasons. Um, like when you talk about the experiences of the African-American community with the medical community, historically, there is there is some bad history there. And it makes sense why there is mistrust. Um, so I think that that's another way that you can dig into the nuance of that question a little bit and and break it open and really explore um, different angles of that. Cass, do you want to hit up another one for us? I shall. I, I shall claim the privilege of um, conveying one of one of my gentleman's questions. Noah at Arcs Tangent um, on Twitter wants to know what visual artists would we choose to do fan art 
of our worlds? All of them. <laughs> oh, any. I mean, that is part of my answer. Is it's anyone true. who wants to draw, please do. Yeah, like just putting out a random plug, I think that some people are afraid that we won't like their fan art or will be offended in some way. No, we love that shit. We eat it up with a spoon. It is like that will make your month if someone, you know, sends you something or posts something um, that that they made. So please, shameless plug. If if you make something inspired by our work, share it with us. We love that. I remember, I think it was, it was Fonda Lee who said, like, if somebody sent me a picture of two stick figures and just wrote, like, Shay and Hilo underneath the stick figures, I would still be so thrilled <laughs> because it is Absolutely. a matter of, like, you cared that much that you did that. With you did whatever. a thing. You did a thing. And that's, that is amazing. Do the thing. We love it. So, because we want it to exist. Because, and most of the time, we write because we can't draw. <laughs> and, and so, therefore, we want it to exist. So, please, make it exist. Who is it? Shannon Shockerboardy just got, like, the coolest, like, I didn't even think of this as a thing on the authorial fan art bingo. But someone had a full cardboard cutout, life-size, of one of her characters. What? It's just like, nope, Shannon wins. She just wins. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just that's that's an auto win right there. So I think in a similar vein, the I didn't know I wanted this until I got it. And I think this answers the question because this really is my like my dream um, that I didn't even know that I could wish for was a um, a textile design student made her capsule collection for her like graduation project based on torn and i will post the links to her instagram photos um but that was that was like my like i didn't know i wanted this this badly but but i totally do and it was and it was amazing and awesome and just the coolest thing so people making like clothing based on based on my work is is apparently what just puts me over the joy edge that's so cool it was so that's incredible I will, I will, I will post that um, when we when we air this episode, so you can go and, and ogle her photos on Instagram. <laughs> the the takeaway from this, dear listeners, is that writers really like fans, and any expression of fandom, we will be almost we any. will be overjoyed by um, almost any. There, there that's are true. There few... are there are lines that, that can be crossed. That's true. There are some yeah. lines. Hopefully, use your common sense of where those lines probably are. <laughs> all, all expressions of fandom that fall within the boundaries of not being a creeper, I guess. That's that's that boundary to put on it. In an attempt to actually answer Noah's question, however, um, the, the thought that came to my mind, I had two. One was um, someone whose actual name I don't know because I, I followed her on LiveJournal a long time ago. Uh, but Makani, who did a bunch of Harry Potter fan art back in the day, and she had just such a great style, and that would be awesome. And then the other thing that occurred to me, because as aforementioned, I've been mainlining X-Men comics, um, Joe Madureira's art style, I think, is 
gorgeous. He did a run in like 96, 97 with the X-Men. And if anyone ever wanted to adapt my books into graphic novels, that, that kind of art would be cool. That'd be, I'd be okay with that. I could, <laughs> I could sign off on that. I'll take it. Fun. I'd take it. I did have, I, I had a great, great joy last year. Um, I think it was last year. A, a reader commissioned some artists to do portraits of Latona from my books. And they were in different styles. Like one was very art deco and, and they were really pretty. And I just geeked out with joy over every single, every single bit of it. Yeah. That, that, that sums it up. I mean, yeah, I can't think of like a specific, like a, cause I don't know. I don't know like specific visual artists off the top of my head who, and because I just love all of it so much that it's just like, is there like I an art pick. style you think would suit your series? Either of you really well, like a I school mean, of art that that would be good. Like I know on some level, like because when I like was doing like looking for things to build those those card pictures out of, like a lot of stuff in fantasy art, just I look at it and I'm like. That is not what I want. And so <laughs> I saw a lot of that, but I can't think of anything specific that's like, yes, like specifically that guy or that artist or whatever, because cause there is just so much that could be cool, regardless of regardless of the style. And I just I just want it to exist and for me not to have to be the one to do it. But yet I did so much just because <laughs> just because like I feel like I could visualize Meridane in the style of Disney's Atlantis, the Lost Empire, like that sort of I could aesthetic. See I could see that. I could see like if there was an animated version, like using that, using that style, definitely because, because again, because that was a really cool animated style in general. I don't know. Well, Just give me all of it. All of it. <laughs> we are greedy. Authors are greedy, greedy creatures. <laughs> greedy, greedy, greedy. We require constant outside validation. So, <laughs> I have to say, this has has very little to do with um, the world in in the Unraveled Kingdom series. But I love the Art Nouveau style. So, anyone who does who does Art Nouveau like um, in the style like Alphonse Musha or or that kind of thing, I just I just geek for that. So, yeah, like a triptych of characters or something that would that would be my my visual art dream all right so we probably have time for one more question do we think i think so I think so yeah, can squeeze them in all right one more i am gonna throw this one at us because um even though it might it might not be cass's favorite but um from from paul on twitter um at prince justin and that's uh the the justin has a v instead of a u if you want to go follow him for his awesome photography you should um what imaginary dishes have you invented for your world that you would want to eat yourself i feel like this question was like just designed for marshall just <laughs> marshall would you like to make a meridane cookbook could you could you throw I that keep together getting asked to make a meridane cookbook and Part of me was like, yeah, I'd be into that. But then I also think, wait, when I cook, I rarely write things down. <laughs> so. so you're more like a throw spices in until the spirits of your oh, ancestors yeah, I'm totally say like, the, okay, the, that's good. That is good. You feel it in yeah, your bones. That's, that is definitely my style of cooking. 
back when Parliament of Bodies was coming out, I did a whole thing of I made a dish from each book before that and put it on Instagram. So, like, to an extent, like, the imaginary dishes I invented, I did eat because I made them. <laughs> For, so which one, for those which series one would, of you, would you recommend that we eat? Would oh, you, would you make for us if we were coming over for dinner? Oh, that's a good question. Probably, like, the big winner would be the one in... It's from Thorn of Denton Hill. It's in Thorn of Denton Hill. It's called Chicken Fallon because Fallon is the region that it comes from. And it's a slow-cooked chicken dish with potatoes and mustard and onions mm-hmm. and... It's really good, and you throw some white wine in there, and you let it just sit in the slow cooker for hours till it falls apart, and then and then you stuff it in your face, and it's delicious. Um, what a, like I feel like the true like the true spirit of this question is imaginary dishes that you can't make because like you can't get like angel meat or whatever. <laughs> That's sick, dude. <laughs> That actually, no, that came what? from. That came it's from. Um, uh, angels in your house. <laughs> no, that came from. Um, Happy okay. holidays, listeners. <laughs> so, Park the Herald here. Angels sing until Marshall gets a hold of them. A while ago, and this is actually how Rowena and I first made contact. I had this idea of doing, doing a cooking show on YouTube. Similar to binging with Bavish, except I would be making dishes from um, from fantasy novels, and so we actually made the 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 hand pies from from Torn. We shot that, and then my son was like, "This footage is garbage. Let's <laughs> never do this." So that's why that project never came about. But the hand pies were delicious. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad way. it at least inspired a good dinner. <laughs> yeah. But I had got, I had heard from several different writers of like, hey, I'm, whatever this thing is you're doing, I'm curious. And one of them was the editor for Matt Wallace's series. It was, it was a series of novellas. I think it's called Sin Du Jour. So it was seven novellas. Each one is focused on a specific sin, but it's about a catering company that makes like mystical foods, including cooking an angel was one of the dishes in, in the book. So that's why I came up with that. I was just like, what would you do to see, like, cause again, you can't get angel meat. So what do you use? That's like to symbolize that. And I was like, well, veal is delicious, but wrong. So, <laughs> okay. I wouldn't even worse than that. Cause I was like, angels are kind of like people. I mean, you know, the way we represent I them. Went, and, I went to pork and, as well. And, I, no, yeah, I was like, and, and long pig. So I'm guessing like a really rare yeah. heritage breed of, of pork. <laughs> oh, God. I was wondering what internal temperature you need to cook angel to. Like, I'm guessing it's similar. What's the, to what's the meat thermometer say similar on that? To pork probably. I think I think Angel, you can go rare because it's not going to have diseases. <laughs> I mean, unless it's coming into contact with something while handling. I mean, it's something infernal. It's, it's fallen, so that's a good question. Do its celestial properties I don't, repel? I don't think so. I mean, I think once it's earthly bacteria. I think once it's meat, it's meat. I have questions. Yeah, I have questions. <laughs> I'm not Un- sure I want them answered, but I have questions. Unanswerable <laughs> questions. 
Yeah, I mean, my my world's food is mostly mundane food. It's I, I haven't really integrated the magic into the food, so I can't really think of a lot there. There's there's things that are sort of exotic, like peacock and stuff. I wouldn't mind knowing what a peacock tasted like. I like poultry, so I don't know. But I don't, I don't have magical food, so I sort of can't reach for that within within my world. I think the one that I and again it's not that I haven't eaten but I haven't like like gone as far as I could with it I invented a dish um a pelian dish called gami which is basically like a pesto but the idea is that you like make a bunch of different kinds of pesto you can combine like any kind of like herbs nuts and cheese that like go well together so you can just like go bonkers and then you eat it with flatbread and that's basically my favorite way of eating is to like take some fresh flatbread and then like dip it in something tasty so i should just make that for dinner sometime. that's always like just a good way to go it really can't is go wrong with that but also like just the idea of like if you're gonna like create dishes you can do a lot of work of just with on a world building level of taking like a basic concept and then tweaking it with whatever is seasonal and local in terms of what they're growing or what's available in in the region that you're working in and so you can make like a basic pesto or the concept of pesto but with a different herb or a different or different oils or whatever and come up with something that has a very different flavor palette but uses those same basic concepts. I think I talked about this on, on the Discord with some of the people where we were talking about stews and if you basically just like combine type of protein, type of liquid, type of you know root vegetable, type of local herb, you can create dozen you know dozens and dozens of different like the local the local variant of a basic stew that that change from region to region and that's that's always a fun thing to do with that sort of thing like i, I even if the local meat i have a th- is angel like i have a theory that like all cultures have a glop <laughs> and it's like a slow cooked something that takes probably takes advantage of a of a tougher cut of meat and you know vegetables that are maybe a little shrivelly um, but every culture has some kind of glop. And so like, I always want to know when I'm reading a fantasy culture, like what's, what's your glop? What kind of glop do you guys make? Um, because and for the other thing, glop is usually the best food. Like it's, it's slow cooked, tender, lots of flavor because the, you know, spices or herbs or whatever have been marinating in there for a while. Like glop is the best. That's true. I, I like the fact that almost every culture has a insert meat or other protein and, and herbs and spices into bread or pastry. You know, from the Cornish pasty to, mm-hmm. to samosas to empanadas. Like, I love them. Give me a little pocket-sized meal that I can just take with me. And I, I adore that. But it shows up all over the place. And often then fried in oil. Because, yeah. Because... Why the heck not? Why wouldn't you? But <laughs> have the option. It's delicious. I love it. I love it. <laughs> there was a thing that like circulated of like a world building joke that like every culture has a fried bread and every culture has a pointy stick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically that. That's humanity in a nutshell. Like everything else is, everything else is set dressing as long as you've got, you know, something fried and starchy, and something pointy to stab people with you've got a culture <laughs> it's a start anyway it's like the starter pack we have gone to the deep end of deeply silly things here. 
Well, I think we have had some excellent questions and I can't wait. And some decent answers. (laughs) They were okay. Um, (laughs) So I can't wait to do this again um, because I always love, love the random question answering and seeing what, what folks want to talk about. Absolutely. And if, if we didn't get to your question this time, we'll hold on to it for the next round and, and see what else we want to meander our way into world building wise. They're really good questions. We can, of course, expand it to a whole episode, which that is true. Do. Yep. We've which done that. We did that with the architecture one. We yeah. So just do. And as always, if you want to chat with us, there's always the discord. And I at least am very online and always on Twitter. So <laughs> lots of forums for in between our, our, our pot pourri episodes. I can't not think of the Eddie Izzard joke. <laughs> sack of pot pourri, five pence a sack. Stuff that fell off trees. It's only five pence. (laughs) Every time I see the word, that's what comes to mind for 20 years now. (laughs) Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 23rd, where we'll be talking with KB Wagers about the sacred and the profane. And knowing us, there'll be far more profanity than sanctity. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there is a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts.